I define my identity. Others may not necessarily agree with that. And then I have to choose whether or not I'm going to participate in the identity that they are going to confer upon me. But I choose that. When people look at that and they say, oh, well, you're only doing that because you're black and you're trying to get your own. And I'm like, I have decades of history Fighting for people's rights that has nothing to do with my own self. Kevin Ressler is the director of Meals on Wheels here in Lancaster, but he does a lot more than that. We had a conversation on a bench in Mosser Park on a very hot August evening. As you can clearly hear, we are serenaded by cicadas the whole way through. So my name is Kevin Michael Ressler. My mom's Tanzanian. She's from East Africa. My dad was a missionary there. You know, she's black Tanzanian. He's white Mennonite Ohio. She was Mennonite there. Um, so he worked for the Mennonite mission. My grandfather was the first bishop to take over from the Mennonite church missionaries. So my dad worked for him and became really close to the family, meets the daughter, ends up getting married. What decade is that happening? My dad went there in 72. They got married in 79. They came back in 81, I think, because my older brother was born there in 80. He was born in December of 80, so they had to have come back in 81 or 82. I preached at Mennonite World Conference last year in Harrisburg, you know, 80 countries. There's 8,000 people there. And my whole sermon is talking about Anabaptism and Mennonite as unifying identity beyond race, beyond beyond culture, beyond country, whatever. And <laughs> so I, at one part, I define myself, my identity as being, let's see, Suba, Luo, which are two of my mother's sort of tribal ethnic heritage. Suba, Luo, Swiss German, Tanzanian, American, white, black, Mennonite. And Mennonite being the unifying on both sides of whatever. Nowhere is Irish in there. Nowhere. Not even close. My, I mean, like, my dad is, like, old school marry your cousin, like, Mennonite until his generation. Like, you know, it's small, close-knit community, all that type of stuff. Like, there is no Irish blood. <laughs> Every third Irishman is named Kevin. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. So, anyway, yeah, so sense of anatomy. So that's my introduction to my name. Uh, but what, that, what that's actually important about is um, I do think that it became formative in... In the sense of understanding, and, and this also impacts how I, how I view race and something, understanding that I define me. That nobody else gets to define my identity. I get to define me. Others can try. They can place barriers in the way of my opportunity. They can, you know, uh, refuse to call me by whatever. But, but at the end of the day, those are just words. Words are just sounds. Sounds are... You know, devoid of meaning unless I allow them to have that meaning. And so so I think from an early from an early age, I it was a large part of, of what I started and I started doing activist stuff in like elementary school, mostly because I wanted to be a knucklehead and I wasn't funny enough to be the class clown. So so like I would I we I remember we did we did a lesson on democracy and voting in fifth grade and uh, this was here. Yeah, I, I grew up in Lancaster. 
I went to Costa Valley from kindergarten through 12th grade. I, we lived downtown for a little bit, and then we moved here when I was six months old, so I'm super Lancaster. But the teacher says, the teacher says to me, she says, um, or not to me, but the whole class, this is what your homework assignment is. We're talking about democracy and voting. And I stand up and I say, who here votes to not have homework? So like from an early, yeah, knucklehead activism. You know, I remember getting in trouble in, in, in sixth grade, my, my, uh, during a rainy day recess and, and we were supposed to stay at our tables and none of my friends at my tables, mine were at the other end of the room. And she had told us that we had to stay in our seats. So of course I like get up holding my chair to my butt and like walk across the room when she's in the other room. And then, you know, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You work in school. (laughs) So then she comes back and she's like, I told you you needed to stay in your seat. I was like, you can ask anybody. My butt did not leave this seat. What I was often struggling with was again, asserting my own sense of self and feeling like I get to define how life works for me. And you can't put these barriers. And, and, And that was, like sort of the seed of what I think has become for me, which is sort of the sense of like everybody should be able to sort of within parameters and social structures be able to provide their autonomy. And so it moved from this hyper-focused elementary school levels of logic <laughs> to like an adult levels of, no, this is true and this is how... And so now I spend less time focusing on my own particularities and my own particular issues and trying to find, okay, now... And, and then my men that faith comes in too, right? So then like who's the least power who is who has less power than i have and then how can i use my power to bring their power up most of what i've done in my life has revolved around poetry theater and sort of justice issues or whatever so many people wouldn't have known i was black if that wasn't part of the sort of conversation right right? and uh because i don't sound black whatever the hell that means and we know we know exactly what it means you know whatever (laughs) but you know, I don't sound black, and my last name is Wrestler. I went to Costa Valley High School and graduated with, I think, like 12 people of color out of 273. So it's a pretty white suburban school. I went to Eastern Mennonite University. I have a Master's of Divinity degree from Lancaster Theological Seminary. And again, my name is Kevin Wrestler, right? Like, so I have had the experience of walking into an interview and people being like, can we help you find something? Right. Or and I'm like, where- just rocking this suit for the hell of it, folks. <laughs> Is there a bathroom around here? Like, what the hell do you think I'm here for? My, my, my larger identifier is actually Mennonite than it is black. In many ways, I've had to learn how to be black in America because even though I was born and raised here and I've experienced discrimination, right, like, I lack the historical biases against my family's ability to own wealth or to generate income, those things, because my family history yeah. in the United States is my dad. My mom's black from Tanzania. And so... Now there's colonialism and whatever inhibits in that aspect, but that's that's a separate that's that, that's not part of my sort of liberal front, uh, and, you know. And and so, so I've often joked that that so we Mennonites and, and you Jews are actually really like similar. Like aside from the fact that like our names are the same, like Groff and Zimmerman, and like I'm like wait a minute. <laughs> but there's the a German lot of there. there's a lot of other there's a Germanist there, but there's also an outside of most mainstream German culture. Um, okay, and. And, and Mennonites, you know, uh, are culpable, and we've, we've learned to understand how we were culpable within, okay, we didn't own slaves as farmers, um, but, you know, we, we were the first group to speak against slavery, because in Germantown, we were worshiping with some Quakers, and the Quakers, um, some Quakers owned slaves, and so we said, no, not cool. We wrote this edict, our, our Mennonites who were worshiping with them, they 
Now, what, you, what year was that? Uh, it was 1690. It was like 100 years before the Constitution. Um, 1670 or something like that. But uh, it was in Germantown. They have the document there if you go to Germantown. Mennonite and, and, but the Quakers and the Mennonites both own this as sort of like when they first started. The thing that's, that's fascinating about it is, is that the Quakers go on to be like really active abolitionists and the Mennonites continue to choose non-resistance and being quiet. And so we have a variety of culpabilities. For instance, our cemeteries are segregated. Like, that's weird. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, slavery and segregation, bad, but heaven is segregated? Of course, the first thing I think is like, you know, like the big Lenny Bruce joke, like if you get a tattoo, you can't be buried in a Jewish cemetery. Like, our cemeteries are segregated too, you know? Right. Mennonites, similar to many Jews, I think is there's an assimilation question here, right? So, like, I'm wearing my favorite shirt, which says this is what a Mennonite looks like, and on the back it says you're a second horse and buggy, and a head covering, and all this stuff, right? And and uh, many of my conservative Mennonite friends call us the invisible Mennonites, right? and, it's, and it's a very disparaging comment, like... You're not confident enough to, de- like to, to, to dress, dress authentically and, be, yeah. and to, to live the life outwardly. And and while I disagree with that, because I don't think that dress and some of those there's often an assumption that the, the groups that broke off because they were more conservative or more authentically Mennonite, and I don't agree with that. But as we assimilated, that also meant certain job opportunities and professionalism and other things became sure. available in sure. the same way that for so we didn't change our names, we changed our clothes. But the same sort of change in opportunity becomes available in a way in which shifting to my black side doesn't become doesn't become available, um, even even if you have the education. What does Mennonite mean? What is it sort of? What are the basic tenets? Yeah, early 1500s. You have Luther and Zwingli and, and all these that start the Reform tradition, the Lutheran tradition, and those those branches. In about 1525, 1527, there's a group of people who are like, ah, y'all haven't gone far enough. Mm-hmm. And they are the Anabaptists. And the Anabaptists right. means rebaptizer. So one of the main things that they said that they hadn't gone far enough was you're still baptizing infants. And so one of the single most core tenets of Anabaptism, and of which Mennonite is one of many different Mennonite brethren, Church of the Brethren, is a variety that fall under Anabaptism, the Amish, um, so the one thing that we all sort of do still hold is we baptize adults because Jesus came as an adult to be baptized. So it should be a confessing faith. And so that was very important, um, in part because one of the other core tenets was uh, refusal to use the sword and violence, sort of pacifism. And at the time, when you were baptized, the church and state were together. So no one really talks about the fact that... At the, the time, 16th century. In, in the 16th century. So... No one really talks about the fact that uh, separation of church and state was actually started by the Anabaptists in Western society. Because when you got baptized, the state was the church and the church was the state. The baptismal roles were also the citizenry roles. And those citizenry roles were used for conscription for the military. So there was a huge systematic threat by the Anabaptists refusing to baptize infants because taxes, your military, your citizen count, and everything that that does for you as a society, you know, implying pressure on other smaller societies, all of that was was wrapped into this. And so this is sort of the the, the formation. And there's there's about seven to 11 different core tenets um, uh, 
so like the, the, the ban on the sword and, and uh, excommunication and separation from the world and all this stuff is where it started. And then from there on out, there's continuous breaking off and schisms in the Anabaptist tradition, which is where you get the Mennonites and the Brethren. And that generally had to do with you're getting too much like them again. Right. So that's Mennonites flee. They flee into two branches. One branch goes to Ukraine. The other branch ends up in the United States. Um, and so in the United States now, because eventually the Ukrainians got pushed out of their area, Catherine the Great had given them some not great land because she knew they were good farmers. And then uh, in the 1900s, uh, the Russians started using more militaristic means and they lost the support of the czars. And so they were pushed into having to fight. So then they fled to Canada and the western part of the United States. So in the United States, there's the, there's the Germanic tradition and then there's the, the Russian tradition. But both of those are born out of persecution. And so that's the other part of, about, uh, you know, one of the other things that's important about um, understanding Mennonites, still there's a large group who are really driven by justice issues, myself would be included in this camp, um, and equality and those types of things. And there's others who are less so now. They don't see that as quite as core. But for those who do see this core, it's partly because we can see ourselves in the oppressed still. We understand what it's like to have a system reject you and to literally kill you. And so I spent four months where? One month was in, well, so it was sort of a touring the trajectory of Christianity. So you start in Egypt, go to Jordan, spend a month oh, in the man. West Bank, spend a month oh, in, in uh, Israel proper. I don't know how you want to use those terms, but West Bank, month in Israel proper. Well, and then, and then, uh, Greece. Go One of my up. best friends is a liberal Jew who did, is not practicing and still did his, um, what's the, what's the birthright tours? Yeah, well, birthright, that's what it's called. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. He did that, and I mean, he did two years after I went. He's like, I didn't see anything you well, saw. I'm like, well, I had an Israeli soldier put an M16 to my throat because I was walking with my white girlfriend back to my hotel in the old city at 10 o'clock, and he's saying, why are you trying to rob this white girl in, in Arabic? And I'm like, hey, can we speak some English here? I have no idea what's going on. Wow. Well, we got in. 30. 30 of us. Two teachers. One black kid from the Bronx, dark black, much darker than I am. Everybody else is white. We're all a group together, coming by bus, going over into the West Bank. They pull me aside for over an hour, pulling my bag apart, swabbing everything, looking at my password and asking me, where are you from? I'm like, United States. Where were you born? Virginia in the United States. Where were you from before then? I'm like, what the hell do you mean before then? Like, what kind of existential question is this? Like, is everybody else somewhere having, like, an existential conversation with a dude with an M16 too? Or is this just me right now? So, you know, it's like, then, then I make the boneheaded mistake of mentioning that my mother's from Tanzania, which, of course, after the USS coal bombing and, and those things. Oh, God. So then it's just, like, it's awful. And so they finally... Let me. Oh, they ask if I speak Arabic. If my mother speaks Arabic, you know. And when did, when did I learn Arabic? After I told them I didn't speak it. So, they, so, so like, so as as we're leaving, you know, they're like, "Oh, well, thank you, or, you know, thank you for for your patience." Da da da. And I am this close to saying shukran. When I look out the door. And I'm like, "Do not die today. Do not die today." <laughs> I hate that this is true, but the most acute examples of racism, and it's probably my top five, happened in. The two months that I So, I, look, I, I am in no way surprised by that. Uh, Ethiopian Jews in Israel today uh, leading a similar kind of grassroots Black Lives Matter movement of their yeah. own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, yeah. of course, like, I'm such an asshole because, like, I never thought of that. Like, that could be a thing. <laughs> right, right. Well, there would be racism against Ethiopian well, Jews. And, and especially considering that mm, there's 
at least textually, probably the Ethiopian Jews are uh, really the real old ones. and <laughs> most likely the, the, the longest, most uncon, most unbroken chain of, yeah. of. I mean, so it's it's yeah, and, and, and I, 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 it's not my community to criticize certain levels. I mean, there's certain level like I will criticize Bibi Netanyahu because he's a politician and he's a pretty public figure and whatever one. Um, I will equally criticize. Uh, Mahmoud Abbas's like willingness, oh, just, just willingness up. to oh, just be like, you know what, the, the, the I'm Palestine going to, I'm going to enjoy is... my position within this. Sure, um, and handpick they were, right? Uh, because yeah. they knew those guys would never uh, yeah. do anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, we got into the West Bank three days after Hamas won the actual democratically elected and, and certified process. So this is in 2006, and then of course immediately following that, we know what happened. Yeah, well, bombed Israel bombed the hell out of Gaza. Out of Gaza. We're pulling out, and look at these because they voted wrong, <laughs> right? Because they voted wrong. It's clear punishment. Um, I mean, it's it's an Attica uprising and following reprisal, and, and it's an open air prison. There's, like I will criticize politics anywhere in the world because politics are politics, but there's like internal family stuff that's harder, and, and sort of like I'll call out racism and the racism of of how the Ethiopian Jews are treated, but more particularly for me is how the Ethiopian Christians get completely shat on, like. I remember going to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and, you know, it's broken up into all these different Christian groups and it's like, oh, where are the Ethiopians? And like, oh, they're on the roof. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> and you have to climb up this ladder. No one goes there. Like, none of the tourists go there. They don't even know they're up there. They're literally on the roof in a shanty with a sheet hanging over it and all of the other traditions have like, we'll give you this much and this much and this much and it's like, hey guys, remember Philip? Remember we were mentioned before any of you other Christians? We were converts from being the oldest Jews. Like, like remember us? It's like, oh, right. Um, well, I think we renovated the space to have air conditioning. If you want to, like, hang a sheet off of that and then down, like, that'll be cool. That's almost literally what it is. And so, so the point being, like, I don't want to criticize the Ethiopian Jews because my own team has some shit to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> Now you have to talk about what you said earlier, which was, I had to learn about blackness in America. Yeah, yeah. Well, in the same way that, like, Because that's so, sort of why we're sitting here, is because, you know, I sat... We're in Muster Park right now, in the city, and, and the first time I ever shook your hand was here, because we were going... Refugee rally. The refugee rally, we <laughs> circle back around. Yeah, like, every six months when Kevin does activism, right? <laughs> uh, and then, so, like, I, and then I saw you uh, in... You know, Penn Square. In yeah. Penn Square. For Black Lives Matter. Right. right. And so we, we, that's how I was introduced to you in the first place, is being like, Black Lives Matter Lancaster man. <laughs> that may not be how you identify yourself, and we'd like to hear about that too, but, yeah, so, yeah. okay. I identify myself as the future mayor of Lancaster City. Ooh, that would be good too. <laughs> Here's your first interview. Um, so, anyway, learning how to be black. Yeah. It, it's, so, I mean, what you just introduced us is, like, really important. My entire life, as has been exemplified in part by this conversation, has been this sense of activism and trying to write injustice. And like I said, my, my big thing since I think fifth grade is when I started getting paying attention to the Israel-Palestine issue. I was a paper boy, and I read every paper cover to cover, before, almost every day, not every day, but most days I would read the whole paper so that when I would go out and, and deliver the newspaper, it was like, hey, make sure you check out this section, this happened. So I started to have this sense of activism, and I have fought for LGBT rights, for women's rights. I have all of a sudden I start doing stuff, 
getting almost conscripted in, but I start doing paper pacifists use conscription whenever they can. <laughs> so I get conscripted into this this activism stuff, and I'm working on these issues of Black Lives Matter stuff. We did the die-in at Park City. That was my first Black Lives Matter. And, and we did it on the busiest day that Saturday, Super Saturday. Um, we did this die-in. And we had 90 people like at the training, and there was like 200 people on the ground there. And it was fascinating, and I was the spokesperson for that. A couple yeah. of my students, I think. Sure, yeah, which is great. Um, never volunteer to be the spokesperson unless you want the rest of your life to be known as Mr. Black Lives Matter. Right. So what happened then, of course, the newspaper has my phone number. And this is great because I want to run for mayor, so whatever. Are you serious about that? You know, why not? Um, uh, I won't publicly announce it other than constantly. I I I mention it all of the time. (laughs) It's like, even at that time, like, I know that I want to be involved in change in my community. So having the phone number and having your number, the phone number of the media, this is a good thing, I thought, at the time. And it's mostly been good, except that, you know, uh, a couple weeks ago in Columbia, there's a shooting, and, and the newspapers and the TV all report that this mother says the Black Lives Matter group told I them saw to fire. You, I saw your report. I saw this report. Right. Yeah. So uh, before you came here, I was talking to that mother on the phone because we have since begun a conversation, and that's not what her intention was. And you know, media hounds someone and whatever. They want the sound bite. They, they want the sound bite, and they need it by five. They're all calling me. Okay, that's fine. I have no problem. Working on that issue, being known for that issue, being reached out for. In fact, I want to be the person to reach out because then I have a confidence in what's going to be responded and how. Right. The problem is when people look at that and they say, oh, well, you're only doing that because you're black and you're trying to get your own. And I'm like, I have decades of history fighting for people's rights that has nothing to do with my own self-interest. And I've done that long before I ever did anything that could even remotely be tied to my own self-interest. And that's a really frustrating position to be in. And then the challenge politically is making sure you don't get pigeonholed in only that thing. But it's really frustrating because we had that rally downtown and there was overwhelmingly white people. But yeah, the perception is it's black people out there just trying to get, you know, there's no real big problem here. So I had to learn how to be black in part because so this is recent then. This is like, well, no, I mean, this publicly is recent, okay. but the reality, I wouldn't have been able to be in that position articulately if I hadn't already begun that process. So this is the public aspect. And so it's very emblematic of what happens, but this happens on a micro level. And it's important to recognize that this doesn't just happen to people like me. This also happens to black people. Like not every single black person either like Tupac or Biggie. Or Hootie and the Blowfish. Like, there were some who were really into Metallica. Or Nirvana. Or Bach. (laughs) And so, when you're part... And I'm sure this is probably partially true for your own self as as a person who identifies as a Jew. right? Not not just that you have Jewish tradition, but identifies as a Jew. Because what does I... it's, It's the issue of identity. And this is why I started out by saying, I define my identity. Others may not necessarily agree with that. And then I have to choose whether or not I'm going to participate in the identity that they are going to confer upon me. But I choose that. So I am Kevin, and I am a black male. My identity is not as an African-American. I will respond to that. My identity is as a Tanzanian-American, and more particularly as a American-Tanzanian Mennonite. And, and that is who I am, my core values and 
And if you're going to tie me to other people who seem to have shared understandings, that that's who I am. When, when we have when we have a family dinner, I don't eat southern cuisine, <laughs> right? Like we have greens, but we make them differently. Like we have chicken, but we make it differently. And and my my best definition for culture has always been it's not what you do, it's how you do it. Because we all do the same things. We all eat. You know, we all wipe. We all do whatever, right? It's just like which hand. And, <laughs> and, and, and other people don't usually pay that much attention to what you do. They don't notice if your glass is on the right-hand side or the left-hand side of your plate. And they don't care. Because they've already put you in their box, in their category, and they're going to treat you that way. And so if you want to be a part of the conversation of change, in my opinion, the lesson that I've learned from when I was 10 and just fighting, fighting, fighting to today was make the team start on the team. Because once you're on the field, they can only, I'll use soccer analogy, they only get three subs a game. And if you're the best guy on the field, they're not going to take you off. Even if they hate you, they're not going to take you off. Because they want to win too. And so, at some point, I had to begin to learn how to at least respond to their presumptions. I will rewrite their expectations to fit my own self, but if I don't know what they see when they look at me, I don't know how to change what they understand. Are people listening? Is it working? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like you said, like, how is the rally reported versus, how, you know, who's yeah. actually there? Uh, where are we going? <laughs> where, where are we going with this? Yeah. Is it going in the right direction? I, I mean, it's a super important question. It's also one that can't really be answered with any level of actual, like, you know, there's, I don't have an empirical study or whatever, but I can say this. I can say that when 38-odd people came from out of Lancaster City and out of Lancaster County with guns into our city and said that they thought that our refugee resettlement program that has been around for 70 years doesn't do their job well, we said hell no, and we said get out. And we showed up with 250 people. And when they killed Philando Castillo, and when they killed Alton Sterling in other communities, we came out and brought 350 people, and we said, we don't agree with a society that is complicit and accepting of that. However, it is also important for us to recognize that those were both national media stories that we were able to get people... Oh, and we had, you know, 200, 150-odd, whatever, in, in the mall from Michael Brown. So it's important to recognize that that, that, is, a, that is a form of success. However, when, when we tried to get people out, and I was less active in this, but when, when, when others, and, and I was somewhat participatory, but when others were trying to build attention for Gregory Bain being murdered by, whatever it wasn't, it was found that he wasn't murdered. So let's let's use the the, the coordination. When there was a homicide committed against a homeless gentleman for peeing outside in Lancaster City, who may or may not have had a knife, who was cornered by two police officers with weapons pointed at them, and they shot to kill, just because we didn't have 250 people out doesn't mean it wasn't important because it didn't fit a particular script. We've got to learn as a community how to respond. Not just to the large liberal issue of the day and whose injustice is being upheld, but 
we also have to be able to identify injustices that other communities also may or may not have, but that they're not able to identify, that we can identify for our own selves here. My white father said, you, black son, have to be twice as good at anything I would have to be for the same opportunity. And you don't have the opportunity to make any mistakes. You don't have that opportunity. So you have to be perfect and twice as good. And I, I was, I, because of my sense of like justice, like this is ridiculous. And so you rejected that. I rejected it. It was part of the reason I didn't try hard because that's so stupid. If that's the set up, then I don't want any part, part of that. in this game. Now I've changed. I said, you know what? I do like that setup. Not because I should have to do that, but because I can. And, and that's what I want for any community I'm in. And so I don't know if it's working or not. But I know it's a way of being. And that way of being, if anything will work, will work. Thanks for listening to this episode of What We Will Abide. Kevin's been nominated for the coveted King of Lancaster crown. If he wins, that will certainly bolster his mayoral hopes. You can now find episodes of What We Will Abide on Facebook. Just search for Sam Schindler 43. As always, I can be reached via Twitter at SamSchindler43 and also at SamSchindler.com. More to come. Original music is by Morning Stillness. The song is called Black Vulture. I am the black vulture, fill this form, find my place at last. Yeah.